Um, before we start, Ashley, could I get Angie? I'm going to make you work since you were mocking me. Um, Andrew had suggested after church last week, I had suggested you read Acts 7 through a few times. Um, and he suggested uh, printing out a cheat sheet for that. So that's what I did. So it begins with the idea of apologetics. And as we talked about last week, apologetics is defending one's faith using rational and historical and scriptural reasoning. Uh, Acts 7 is one of the greatest examples of apologetics that we have. I mean, the letters of Paul are also in their own way apologetic. They are defending the faith against uh, arguments against Jesus. And uh, here, Stephen has been accused of blaspheming against God and Moses and the temple. And those are charges that will get you executed. So therefore, his apologetic approach is to counter those accusations with evidence of God doing a new thing through Jesus Christ. If that's what he's being charged for, he's going to use those charges to highlight what new thing God is doing. If he's accused of blaspheming the temple, he will address the new way that God is present with his people outside of the temple. Going further back than the temple, he addresses the tabernacle as well as its originator, Moses. But going back even further than that, and where we'll spend our time this morning, Stephen takes the Sanhedrin to the very origins of their faith, the seed from which God's formation of a people all his own began to take root. Stephen begins his great speech by discussing the patriarchs. The word patriarch is a Greek word. Uh, Pater means father, and archos means chief or ruling or forefront. So patriarch, father, forefront, chief, ruling, they're... They're the first and ruling fathers of faith. They're the chief fathers from which all of the Hebrew people were descended. And the first father of faith is, of course, who? Who's the first father of faith, the first patriarch? Abraham. Abram became Abraham. That's right. But Stephen also devotes time in this passage to Abraham's son Isaac, through whom... Um, the, the covenant-stealing rite of circumcision was first performed in its proper manner, was through Isaac, uh, as well as the twelve sons of Jacob, for whom the tribes of Israel are named, with special attention paid on Joseph, whom God delivered and who eventually became an important deliverer for Israel. And I forgot to mention Jacob, Jacob whose other name is Israel, and who is the namesake for all of God's people. So the patriarchs are, again, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob's sons. They constitute the patriarchs. These are critically important stories for Stephen's audience, and it's not lightly that Stephen invokes their names. The idea of God being active in history was a source of tremendous hope for the Jews, and to them, nowhere is that more clear than in Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. You can add in other men like the prophets or David or the judges, but when they think of God active in history, it's to the patriarchs that they turn first. An enormous part of their identity was wrapped up in the first father of faith, Abraham. Also Moses, also the temple, as we'll see in the next couple of weeks. But Abraham is the first patriarch, and so he holds a special honor. So much so that one of the highest compliments a Jewish man could receive was to be called a true son of Abraham. That meant you were a Jew through and through. Stephen's argument is calculated to uh, evoke the strongest possible reaction and to deliver the strongest possible impact. And it does. He achieves that goal. By the time the last stone is thrown, and Stephen is finally martyred, he will have changed the course of the Christian faith. 
And for that reason, he is, along with men like Paul and Peter, his own kind of patriarch. Stephen, Peter, and Paul form kind of something like patriarchs of the early church, the first fathers. And today we will examine how Stephen utilizes the names of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph to lay the foundations for his big three points that we will look over again and again and again, and it's in your cheat sheet. No, not that. The big three are a God who is not confined to specific locations, a worship of God that's not confined to specific locations, and a people of God who constantly reject his truth and his truth-tellers. Stephen returns to those three ideas throughout his speech. But before we start reading Acts 7, I want to ask you, what story of the patriarchs are you most familiar with? When you think of Abraham, what story comes to mind immediately? Or Jacob, or Isaac? What story? The sacrifice of Isaac. Yeah, that's kind of the story of Abraham's life, right? That, that we think of. That, that's mine too. When I think of Abraham, that's what I think of immediately, is the near sacrifice, the willingness to sacrifice Isaac, his, his promised son. What else? Yeah, the coat of many colors that made his brothers so jealous, got him sold into slavery. Yeah. When you think of Jacob, what story do you think of? Wrestling with God. That's absolutely the first one I think of too. That's what the name Israel means. He, Jacob had his name changed from Jacob to Israel. Israel means wrestles with God because he did one time wrestle with God and overcame. Yeah, that's exactly what I think of too. I also think of Jacob as a trickster, how he was born grabbing the heel of Esau and how he tricked Esau out of his birthright so that he would get the blessings that Esau deserved. Jacob was kind of a nasty dude in some ways. These are all big stories, right, of the patriarchs. And guess what? None of them even get touched on by Stephen, except the reference to Joseph and his coat and his brothers being jealous. But the big story I think of, of Abraham is the sacrifice of Isaac, and that would have fit with the, with the theme of Jesus is God's son who was sacrificed. He could have easily been apologetic in that direction, but he wasn't. He doesn't even talk about that. He doesn't talk about Moses, or Abraham interceding for the pagan nations. He doesn't talk about Jacob wrestling with God. He doesn't talk about Jacob the trickster who is redeemed by God. He doesn't talk about any of those big stories, which is interesting to me. As, as he indexes the work of the patriarch, patriarchs, those stories don't fit into his thesis statements that you see behind me. God not confined to a specific location. Worship of God not confined to a specific location. And truth-tellers being rejected. Those stories don't fit into his thesis statements. So what stories of the patriarchs does Stephen highlight? Well, we're going to begin by looking at Abraham in Acts 7, verses 2 to 8 to find out. This was Stephen's reply. Brothers and fathers, listen to me. Our glorious God appeared to our ancestor Abraham in Mesopotamia before he settled in Haran. God told him, leave your native land and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. So Abraham left the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran until his father died. Then God brought him here to the land where you now live. But God gave him no inheritance here, not even one square foot of land. God did promise, however, that eventually the whole land would belong to Abraham and his descendants, even though he had no children yet. God also told him that the descendants would live in a foreign land where they would be oppressed as slaves for 400 years. But I will punish the nation that enslaves them, God said, and in the end they will come out and worship me here in this place. God also gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision at that time. 
So when Abraham became the father of Isaac, he circumcised him on the eighth day. And the practice was continued when Isaac became the father of Jacob, and when Jacob became the father of the twelve patriarchs of the Israelite nation. We'll stop there. Stop there for now. So before discussing the ins and outs of Stephen's speech here regarding Abraham, a quick geography lesson. Here is the map of the uh, ancient Middle East. Here is Israel along the coast here. Uh, you can see, or actually you can't. Here is Salem, which becomes Jerusalem. Um, and way over here, or possibly up here because we're not sure, is Ur. Ur is very, very far from Israel, right? Like the, the boundaries of, of Israel go to here. This, the Jordan River is right here. That's Israel there. And Abraham was hanging out way over here. They're nowhere near each other. It's not really close to the Holy Land that God would promise to Abraham's descendants, is it? No, it's not even close. But it was here in Ur that Abraham first heard the call of God. And it was here in Ur that Abraham responded to God with faith and obedience. Abraham had no idea where God was leading him. God just said to him in chapter 12, I will lead you to a new place, a new land. There you will have many descendants. And he elaborates on the promise. But Abraham has no idea how or when or in what direction God was going to lead him. He just followed it was uh, an insane adventure to undertake. And you can imagine he would hear it from Sarah more than a few times. Where do you think we're going? I have no, I have no idea where we're going. I'm just going. But it was, as, as crazy as the journey sounded, it was also an example of true wisdom. Listening to and obeying the word of God despite any doubt, despite any uncertainty, despite any misgivings. It was an act of pure faith. He heard the call of God and he followed. But what Stephen wants to emphasize isn't just the act of faith. He wants to emphasize where this act of faith occurred. Not in Judea, not in Jerusalem, not even in Israel. Nowhere near Israel, in fact. But hundreds of miles away in Ur. Faith was founded far away from the Holy Land. In fact, there was no Holy Land yet. It was merely a promised land at this point. And even when Abraham finally arrives in Canaan, the promised land, he lives there as a foreigner and as an alien, with no land in his actual possession, as, as Stephen says, not even a square foot of his own land. In the same way that a 75-year-old man with no son had to trust that God would give him descendants that outnumber the sands on the shore, so too did this 75-year-old man have to trust that one day, one day, these very descendants would have a homeland full of providence and blessing. But until then, he was a foreigner, a pilgrim. But that's not all. Not only did Abraham have to trust that God would give him the land he had promised as an inheritance, Abraham also had to hear these challenging words from God. This is Genesis 15, 12 to 15. As the sun was going down, Abraham fell into a deep sleep, and a terrifying darkness came over him. So the stage is set that this is a dark and scary thing that's going to happen. Then the Lord said to Abram, you can be sure that your descendants will be strangers in a foreign land where they will be oppressed as slaves for 400 years. But I will punish the nation that enslaves them. And in the end, they will come away with great wealth. As for you, you will die in peace and be buried at a ripe old age. How would you like to hear God say that the, the children of your children of your children of your children are going to suffer as slaves for 400 years before they are delivered? How would you like to hear that? We all want the best for our children. 
And at this point, when Abram's hearing these words in Genesis 15, he hasn't even had a son yet. Not a legitimate son. He hasn't even had a son. And God is saying, you will have a son, and this son will suffer. Or the children of this son will suffer. So to recap, Abraham is very old, even by Genesis 12 standards. He has promised descendants beyond number, though he has no children to speak of. He has promised a homeland hundreds of miles away that he's never been to. And now he has promised that these descendants, which he doesn't have, will have to suffer slavery in a foreign land for four centuries before they can finally claim the promised land, which he's never stepped foot in. That's a lot for an octogenarian to have faith in, or anyone for that matter. And it doesn't begin to get fulfilled until he's, get this, 100 years old. That's how old Abraham is when Isaac is finally born. 100. I don't, that's a miracle. That, even in those days, they didn't have Viagra. I don't know how it happened. It's just a miracle. But Abraham, far, far away from the Holy Land, many, many years before the law was given, is an example of faith and obedience and worship because of this. He had no temple to worship in, and yet God was with him. He had no land to call his own, and yet God was with him. He had no law to follow except the bare promises of his creator and a command to circumcise himself at age 100, and yet God was with him. So Abraham, a foreigner and a pilgrim, is the first and primary patriarch, father of faith. So can you see how the foundations of Stephen's first two thesis statements are being laid here? God is not confined to one location. He never had been. He calls Abraham out of Ur, a town that sounds like what it's named after when the the people ask where Ur was. Ur, I don't know, the Chaldeans, I don't know. Ur, I don't know. It's nowhere, at least nowhere that's as familiar or as important as Jerusalem. Thank you for laughing at that joke. And then he sends Abraham to Egypt, and he makes the dark promise that Abraham's descendants would spend time suffering in that foreign land as well. But God would be with them. To Abraham, the father of faith, the promised land remained just that, a promise. And it would remain that way until Moses, not even Moses, Joshua. It would remain that way for hundreds of years, just a promise, something on the horizon, something to hope for. So basically, Stephen is saying to the Sanhedrin, don't tell me God can only work in Israel. They think that God is only active with this small council of men in this small temple in the small nation of Israel. That's what They have a very boundaried conception of God's work, right? So Stephen says, don't tell me that God can only work in Israel. He's not bound by borders or by geography. And don't tell me you need to worship only in Jerusalem. Abraham, of whom you all, all you Sadducees and Pharisees, call yourselves children of, he worshiped God in obedience and in ceremony throughout the ancient Middle East, from Babylon to Egypt, from Ur to Haran, and yes, eventually to Canaan for a time. But God is not confined to any specific location, and neither is the worship of him. Stephen doesn't even mention the near sacrifice of Isaac, even though that would have been a powerful image of Jesus' sacrifice, because his apologetics are directing him to focus on the boundary-shattering work that God is doing in his new kingdom. It is not concerned with boundaries or nations. It's a kingdom. It's not an empire, as Israel had been. And so, 
After focusing on Abraham, Stephen then turns his attention to the 12 patriarchs, the sons of Jacob for whom the 12 tribes of Israel were named. Men like Reuben, shouldn't have started because I can't name them all, Issachar, Judah, um, this little baby Benjamin is the last one, and we'll stop there. <laughs> um, Naphtali, great name. And the aftermath, uh, so we look at those guys, and the aftermath of their time in Egypt. And that's verses 9 to 19, so let's read that. These patriarchs were jealous of their brother Joseph, and they sold him to be a slave in Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. And God gave him favor before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God also gave Joseph unusual wisdom so that Pharaoh appointed him governor over all of Egypt and put him in charge of the palace. But a famine came upon Egypt and Canaan. There was great misery and our ancestors ran out of food. Jacob heard that there was still grain in Egypt, so he sent his sons, our ancestors, to buy some. The second time they went, Joseph revealed his identity to his brothers and they were introduced to Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent for his father Jacob and all his relatives to come to Egypt, 75 persons in all. So Jacob went to Egypt. He died there, as did our ancestors. Their bodies were taken to Shechem and buried in the tomb Abraham had bought for a certain price from Hamor's sons in Shechem. As the time drew near when God would fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt greatly increased. But then a new king came to the throne of Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph. This king exploited our people and oppressed them, forcing parents to abandon their newborn babies so they would die. We'll stop there on that gloomy note. So here's where the third of Stephen's three theses begins to take shape. Spurned on by jealousy, Joseph's brothers sell him into slavery. Why? Because Joseph told the truth. He told the truth about the dreams that he had, where his brothers were stars that bowed down to him, and she's the grain that bowed down to him. And they hated that. They hated that God was working through him in this special way, that he was favored by both his father, Jacob, and apparently by their creator father, God. And because of their jealousy at his truth-telling, they persecuted him. They had him sold into slavery. They abandoned him, forfeited their youngest brother, their bratty kid brother, Joseph. God was with Joseph then, as verse 9 says, and his own brothers abandoned him because of that. But God was still with Joseph to the point where not only God's people were saved, but all of the great nation of Egypt was saved through the actions of Joseph. By the way, the great foreign nation of Egypt that God is working in. Egypt's not in Israel, but there's God at work again. By the way, in spending so much time on Joseph's rejection by his brothers, and by detailing the events that led his brothers and his whole family to be saved by Joseph, might be a slight dig by Stephen against the Pharisees. Why? Well, because Jesus was like a little brother to the Sanhedrin but he was utterly rejected by them the first time he came to earth. But boy, oh boy, the second time he comes to earth, he will be revealed in all the power and all the glory, even greater than Joseph was when he was fully revealed to his brothers in Egypt. They will have no doubt about who holds the power to judge and to deliver when that little brother comes back again. So I like that. But back to the thesis statements. Notice how Stephen takes time to mention the death of Jacob as well as very specifically their burial spots in Shechem. Seems like a strange thing to focus on, doesn't it? Including them in your last words before you're stoned to death. Why is this an important inclusion for Stephen? 
Well, because in death, even death in a foreign land, the patriarchs still had the promises of God fulfilled. God still fulfilled his promises to them. Even though they were in a foreign land, their bodies were brought back to Shechem, and buried in the promised land. They were buried not in Egypt, but in the land that God had promised them and their descendants, the land that already housed the tombs of their forefathers, Abraham and Isaac. Again, God's promises are not concerned with geopolitical divisions at all. It doesn't matter to him. He will accomplish his good work even in unexpected places. And here you may say, but Chris, you speak of good works. But the good favor of Joseph didn't last very long, and soon the Israelites are forced into slavery, even, as Stephen says, forced to hand over their children to be sacrificed. That doesn't sound like very good works from a faithful God, does it? Well, that's a good point. And you could take it a step further and say that the slavery actually occurred because of one of God's promises. The Hebrew population in Egypt was exploding, like the sands on the seashore, like the stars in the sky, just as God had promised Abraham. But that promise just led to oppression and genocide for 400 years. So you could argue that God's promise was harmful to his people for a time. But here's the thing. If God had allowed the Israelites, the Hebrews, I should say, to stay comfortable and powerful in Egypt, as Joseph was, would they have ever had any need to cry out to him? If they remained in favor, would God ever have been able to deliver them and make them his precious children and finish up the promises he had made to the patriarchs before them? Slavery made them remember their God. That, that's a hard position to take, and I think it requires a long view of the work that God has done. I mean, there's no, there were no Hebrews in slavery saying, hey, this is good for us. This is okay, because this way we can cry out to God, and he'll hear us, and he'll form us into a nation. I think it took reflection hundreds of years later to recognize that that was God at work as well. But slavery made them remember God, But God had never forgotten them. It's not that God needed to remember the Hebrews. It's that the Hebrews needed to remember God. God had never forgotten them, nor the promises that he had made to them. And so Stephen leaves the time of the patriarchs in an era of great suffering, at a time where their backs are broken under slavery and their children are being confiscated from them and thrown into the Nile River. An awful, awful time in a period of a group of people who suffered many, many awful times the Jewish people. And that's where Stephen leaves us for now. Promises are being fulfilled, but they only lead to heartache. Where is God going with this? What about his covenant with Abraham? Well, we continue these thoughts next week with the introduction of Moses. What can the story of Moses teach us about a God not confined to specific locations, a worship of God unlimited by specific locations, or a people of God consistently rejecting the one sent by God to deliver truth and justice and law? Well, we'll find that out next week. For now, I want to close off the patriarchs by highlighting Stephen's message concerning the forefathers of faith. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph are all heroes to various degrees. They are flawed heroes, to be sure. Abraham was always lying about Sarah being his sister, and neighboring kings would take her in and want to sleep with her, and then they would get punished because that's Abraham's wife. But he was hiding that fact from them. It happens twice. Kind of a scummy thing to do. And he does that out of fear. 
He also shows distrust in the promise of God by believing Hagar's son Ishmael would become the son of promise rather than a son through his elderly wife Sarah. So Abraham's not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. He's faithful, but he's not perfect. And don't even get me started on Jacob. He was a trickster and a fraud. He's not the kind of guy you'd want to spend much time with, it seems like. And Joseph, well, he was kind of perfect. But that's the annoying part about him. He was too perfect. He had integrity all the time. It was frustrating. It's what got him sold into slavery by his brothers. He, he told truth without any kind of tact whatsoever. Um, and he was kind of over the top in deceiving his brothers about his true identity. He, he really made them sweat. Just vengeance is always cool, but it's always kind of rude. And so these patriarchs, these heroes of ours, they're not perfect. But they are heroes. None of what I've just said should strip them of their title of heroes of faith. Why? They gave up everything to follow God into foreign lands with no inheritance. They circumcised themselves, I should add, oh, that just, at age 100, out of sheer covenantal obedience, just because God told them to do it. They wrestled with God and overcame. They showed integrity and told difficult truths that got them rejected. They illustrated faith demonstrated obedience, and communicated truth. But the key to all of this for Stephen and for us in the next few weeks is that they did all of this in foreign lands with nothing but God's word to cling to. Before there was a promised land or a promised son, there were merely promises. Right? And these promises were made and fulfilled in unholy lands surrounded by unholy people. God was at work giving unexpected promises to unexpected people in unexpected places far, far, far from the Holy Land. He was not limited by location, nor was he limited by imperfect followers. This was true in Genesis, this is true in Acts, and this is true today in Clyde Christian Bible Church. There are no limits or boundaries to who he will use or where he will use them or what he will do with you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the stories of the patriarchs that remind us that imperfect people can show tremendous faith and do great things for you, unexpected things in unexpected places. I thank you that you called Abraham to follow you from distant lands, that he just relied on promises and and there was no sure thing. Father, I pray that that would be an example to us of what faith really looks like. Father, I thank you also for the stories of Joseph and his integrity for Jacob and how he wrestles with you and overcomes, those are all stories that we can cling to as well. But in all these things, Father, help us to see that even though we are small and we are unexpected people, that we can do unexpected great things for your glory and for your kingdom. Pray all these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.